Well, thank you, Chris and worship team, especially for that last hymn that we sang together. I hope you really do sense that no matter what your sin is, and no matter how deep that sin is or how far it has taken you, there is abundant mercy. God's mercy is more. And that's certainly the heartbeat of the book that we have been uh, looking at together as we have found ourselves traveling along the way with the prophet Jonah, who years after the events written in the book, uh, sat down to write the book. In other words, he's looking back on what happened and writing down what God taught him in such a way that we would come to embrace, experience, and celebrate the relentless grace of God and His massive sovereign mercy. We noted that the book of Jonah, these 48 verses that make up the four chapters, are artfully designed. It's just a beautiful book. When you really sit and start thinking through how this book actually fits together, you begin to realize that when the Holy Spirit inspired Jonah to write it, he wrote beautiful literature. And then we noted not just that it was artfully designed, but that it was carefully and thoughtfully constructed. It is a very intentional book. Everything in the book has a purpose, and we've been discovering what those purposes are as we've made our way through these 48 verses, and then it is theologically simple, but very profound. And by the time we come to the end of the book, we begin to see the spiritual value of what God has been teaching us through Jonah. And really at the heart of the book is this idea that, that God's mercy is scandalous. God's mercy is scandalous. Now, you know, I was thinking about that as I was working on this text this week, and the question came up into my mind, how could anybody be scandalized by mercy? The word scandal or scandalize has the idea of being offended, being tripped up. That's sort of buried into the Word. How could anybody be tripped up by the amazing mercy of God? How could we be offended and scandalized by God's mercy? We understand and actually rejoice when we think about relentless grace and scandalous mercy. And part of the reason for that is we've been reading about that and we've been hearing about that our entire lives as believers. We celebrate that relentless grace and scandalous mercy that pursued our first parents in the Garden of Eden after they had fallen into sin and after Adam and Eve hid themselves from the sight of God and covered themselves with a covering of their own making and God's grace relentlessly pursued. And by the end of that period of time, we begin to realize the immense mercy that God extended to our first parents. And that's the reason you and I can have that same mercy. We celebrate that mercy and that grace in the life of Abraham and Sarah. And later in the life of Isaac and Rebekah. We see that relentless grace that will not let Jacob remain in his manipulative ways. We celebrate that grace when it shows up in David's life. Even through the lips of God's anointed servant, David's friend, Nathan the prophet. 
So you and I are familiar with grace and we celebrate mercy. So how in the world could anybody be scandalized by mercy? We've been accustomed to hearing these stories and reading these stories that we are not easily shocked when God grants mercy. In fact, it's the opposite. We're actually offended and shocked and surprised when God doesn't. And so that brings us back to the point of how in the world could somebody like Jonah be scandalized by mercy? Because it's very clear as we get into the book, and as we've been working our way through the book, that Jonah is deeply offended at something God has done. He is at odds with God. And at the heart of that conflict between Jonah and God is a question about mercy. And the question is simply this. I thought about trying to frame it up in a very simple way. The question is simply this. Are there people who should not receive mercy even if they respond to God appropriately and beseech Him for such mercy? That's really the question. Because we know that God is merciful. He's told us this. We know that God's character is filled with grace and mercy. This is built right into the very creed of Israel. In fact, Jonah references this same creed in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So we're not surprised that God is merciful. So Jonah is not offended that God is a God of mercy. In fact, actually, he rejoices in that mercy when it's directed to himself and to people he feels are appropriate recipients of that mercy. And so we come back to the question, are there people who should not receive God's mercy even if they respond to God appropriately and ask God for it? And Jonah and God have very different answers to that question. And they are both very strong in their answers. You know God's answer because He sent His servant, Jonah, on a mission of mercy. He sent him into the very heart of the most wicked city on the planet at the time. Nineveh, as we have noted, was a great city in chapter 1. And God says, now I want you to know something about this great city. Their wickedness has come up before me. In other words, they have been acting so wickedly for so long in such a broad expanse of areas that God says, the cup of my judgment is filled and that judgment and that wrath is going to come upon you. Now think about this. God did not have to send a messenger to Nineveh. He could have just judged them. He could have just poured out His wrath on them and nobody would have challenged God for doing it. I mean, when you think about Nineveh, which at that time represented the whole Assyrian Empire, there was nobody on the planet with a darker reputation for moral depravity, for idolatry, for iniquity, for injustice. Thousands of cities had been destroyed. Hundreds and thousands of people had been brutally ravaged and displaced by this nation. And they had been doing it for a very long time. And among the nations that had suffered under the weight of their oppression was God's own chosen people, Jonah's nation, Israel. 
And so when God said to Jonah, I want you to get up, and I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach to them the message that I'm going to give you, and the reason I'm doing this is their great wickedness has come up before me, that became incredibly offensive to Jonah. And you know the story, we don't have to repeat it. He arose and he went 1,500 miles in the opposite direction. Now we don't know this until chapter 4, but he and God had a conversation about this. We don't know the conversation until chapter 4, Verses 1 and 2, when Jonah says to God, this is exactly what I was talking to you about when you first told me to come here. I knew that this was going to happen. I, I suspected it, and now I, I've been proven right. That's the whole reason I went to Tarsus and I renounced my office as your prophet, and I left the land that I belong to, the land where you have chosen to put your presence and I decided I want no more of that if you're going to go to the, to the nation of Assyria that has created all of this chaos and give them mercy. I want none of it. And God relentlessly pursued Jonah, right, in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. Finally, at the bottom of, ocean, of an ocean in the belly of a great fish, Jonah relents. And he acknowledges salvation belongs to the Lord. And God graciously restores his prophet. Jonah is vomited back out on the shore where he set out. He makes his way up to the temple, pays his vows that he made to God in the belly of that great fish, and then he takes a 500-mile journey to Nineveh. And when he gets into the city, he gives partial obedience to God. God said, I want you to take the message to the entire city. And God says, now this city is three days in length. It's going to take you three days to do this. Jonah goes in. He preaches a very brief five-word message. And he's done. And an amazing thing happens. God grants repentance to these people. He opens their eyes so that they can understand the truth of what Jonah is saying. He enlivens their heart so they can receive what God is offering and respond to Him. He grants them faith, the same faith that He granted Abraham, an earlier idolater from that very same part of the world. And they did what Abraham did. They believed God and they got what Abraham got. They believed God and it was counted unto them for righteousness. And when God saw what they did... In turning away from their evil, God turned away from the disaster that He was going to bring upon them. And as we've noted before, there was great rejoicing in Nineveh. But even more, we're told in the Scriptures that when a single sinner repents, the angels of heaven celebrate. There was great rejoicing in heaven. There was great rejoicing in the city of Nineveh for the immense mercy they had received but in all of this joy, there was one angry dude. And his name was Jonah. And we find Jonah sitting on a hill. And he is absolutely frustrated with God. And what we said earlier, he, he's angry at what 
God has done. And so Jonah is looking back on all of this, and he is saying to us, look, I want you to think about what happened to me on that hill. I want you to come, I I want you to sit right next to me in the booth, and I want you to see how God began to work in my life to expose that in my heart was the greatest evil in the book. Nineveh had a great evil that came up before the Lord. But there was an even greater evil that came up before the Lord in the heart of his prophet. And Jonah says, as I was sitting there, I I sat there in utter frustration, offended at God, because what he had done in forgiving these kinds of people, given the depth of their idolatry and the extent of their immorality and the cruelty of their violence, to, to, to extend mercy to them is theologically unthinkable. It is morally reprehensible. And it is spiritually offensive. And I want no part. And so, Jonah is angry because God isn't. And sometimes if we're honest, that's where we are. Jonah said, I want you to see that when my heart wasn't like God's, God had to rescue me from me. And sometimes God has to rescue us from ourselves. So, that brings up the question, how does God do this? How does God deliver Jonah from Jonah? And Jonah says, well, we've already talked about my heart and how God began to unfold it. So, let me begin to explain to you in the last section of my story what God began to do as he spoke mercy into my misery. And the first thing I want you to see, Jonah would say to us, is the sobering rebuke that God gave me. In other words, God was not silent in all of this. And as God began to listen to what was coming out of my heart, He had a single question that that produced a sobering rebuke. And that single question is in verse 4. Do you well to be angry. Do you well to be angry? Looking back on these events, Jonah wants to make sure you understand something. God has already stated how he feels about what happened. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 10, notice this language, when God saw, when God saw. If you're thinking and trying to put all of this in some larger context, there's a faint echo back to Genesis 1. You remember at the end of every day, God looked at the work that He had done with His voice, and He gave an assessment of what had happened that day in response to His voice. And God saw that it was good. Here is a city that has responded to God's voice. And God wants you to know what He feels about what He sees. It is good. But here's a prophet sitting on a hill looking back down on the city and he sees the very same thing that God sees and it's not good in Jonah's eyes. And that's the background to the question, Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about this? You have looked at what I have done and I've already told you how I feel about it. When I looked at what happened in response to my voice, 
When I sent you with the message of warning, and the Spirit of God began to work in the hearts of these sinners, and He opened their eyes, and He quickened their heart, and He granted them repentance, and He gifted them faith, and here they've repented, it is good. And Jonah, you have actually concluded that it is evil. You are putting me in the same category as the Ninevites. You have decided that something I have done is morally, spiritually, and theologically reprehensible. And the reason I know that is because you are burning up with anger. And I have a piercing question for you. And the question is not intended to give me information. The question is to give you an examination. Are you right in your anger? Well, Jonah doesn't answer God out loud. We're going to find out that he does later, but Jonah picks himself up and he heads out to the hills to the east of the city and he builds for himself a booth. And there he sits burning up with anger at God. He's angry because what God has done violates all the theology that Jonah has known. God is appearing to violate the theological beliefs that were at the core of who Jonah was and what he spent his entire life doing as a prophet of God to Israel. God, you've given theological truth, and one of the truths is that the the unjust will not go unpunished. And here are the most unjust people on the planet. And and theologically, you've just wiped away all of their iniquity and all of what they have done. And there is no justice in your mercy. This is theologically untenable. And on top of that, it's morally reprehensible. These people have broken every one of the commandments that you gave us And when you gave us the Torah and you told Moses to lay out all of that truth to us, you also told us that there were certain sins that were worthy of death. And if an Israelite committed certain sins, there was no sacrifice for them. You could not offer a sacrifice for idolatry. You could not offer a sacrifice for adultery. You could not offer a sacrifice for murder and taking away the life of another person. God, you know this. You wrote it down for us. And I've been warning God's people about this. And and the law is very clear on this. And here you have gone and you've set aside your law and you've given mercy to people that in Israel, had they done these things, would have been executed. This is morally reprehensible. You have violated your own standards of justice. And on top of that, It is personally uncomfortable for me. I mean, here I am, your chosen prophet, your anointed servant, part of your kingdom, part of your nation, and I'm sitting out here on a hill, burning up under the heat of the sun, and here are these people who ought to be burned up in your wrath and burned up in your anger, and they're rejoicing. And God says to Jonah, Jonah, Are you right to be angry? 
I think Jonah put all of this there because he wants us to unpack our heart as we listen to him unpack his. He is saying to us, look, I'm on that hill, and what I didn't realize or wouldn't admit while I was sitting there is that I was actually in the wrong. I had it all figured out. I I was theologically justified. I was morally right. I had the moral high ground, the theological high ground, the spiritual high ground, at least in my mind, and I was utterly convinced that what God had done violated all of the things that God said. And I was angry. I think Jonah would put his arm around us and say, listen, I, I think that no matter how hard I tried to justify my anger at what God had done, it wasn't righteous. I was convinced theologically. I was bolstered up morally. I, I, I knew that I had the justice scale in the Torah. And I was absolutely convinced that my anger was righteous. It was righteous indignation. But you know, God had to do something to help me look into my own heart and realize that my anger was actually wicked. And I think Jonah would say to us, that's what God's trying to do in your life. That's why you're sitting next to me in the booth on the hill. And just like it was very difficult for me to come to the place where I could really see my heart and God would show me that it was nothing like His heart, that same process has to happen to you. It has to happen to me. And this is one of the beauties of the book. The beauty of the book is this. As as we see Jonah telling us what happened to him, he's, he's telling us this in a very artful way, in a very beautiful way. He's telling us this in a very practical way, and he's telling us this in a very powerful way, because when we see Jonah, we are seeing ourselves. And so there is this incredible rebuke. And Jonah says, you know, God was not about to abandon me to my sinful anger. He pursued me with relentless grace just as hard as he pursued the Ninevites. Truly, God's mercy is without distinction. God is not a respecter of persons. And He knew that I needed the same relentless grace and the same sovereign mercy that the Ninevites needed. And I actually needed more of it. And God pursued me just like He's pursuing you. He began to pursue me. He began to relentlessly push me toward that mercy. And he is doing the same thing if you'll let me, or, or let him rather. And at that point, I want to look over at Jonah and say, well, Jonah, how did it go with you? I mean, here you are, and you're exposing your heart to me, and I don't want to admit it yet, but my heart's a lot like you, so how did it work out for you? And Jonah just shakes his head, and he says, well, I'm ashamed to tell you that my burning anger blinded me, and instead of responding to all of this gracious pursuit of God, I repeated the same thing I did back in chapter 1. You remember when Jonah was on the boat? And everything had been exposed? And he's standing there on the deck, and he has a choice. I can repent or I can perish. And Jonah said, if I've got a choice to make, I'm going to perish. 
And over the side he goes. And Jonah says, I did the same thing two chapters later. I didn't jump into an angry ocean this time. I went out into a burning desert. And while I was there, God began to expose even more of my heart. There was this sobering rebuke. But how did I respond to that? Jonah said, I I responded with silent resistance. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city... And he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself. Now, what are we to do with all of that? Genesis, well, let me make sure you understand something. At that point, I am not talking to God. Silence sometimes is golden, but in this case, it was sinful. And as I went out, I want you to know the direction that I went. I went out to the east. And I might look at Jonah and say, well, Jonah, what's the big deal about you going east? It's just a direction. And Jonah would say, no, 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 no. I put that detail in there because I want you to pick up on something. In the Old Testament, particularly, when somebody moves east, it's actually moving away from the presence of God. Think about the direction, Jonah would say. Let me remind you of the direction that Adam and Eve went when they were expelled from the garden. They went east. Think about Cain. After he was judged, he was cast out and he went further east. And later on in this chapter, God is going to send a wind from the east. And so the reason I want you to know that when I went out of the city, I went east, is because I'm doing the same thing here that I did way back in chapter 1. I am moving away from God. I am removing myself from God's presence. And then when I got there, I sat on that hill and I made a booth. And the reason I made a booth was for shade. And I want you to pick something up about my booth. When I talk to you about the booth, I use the same word for the booth that I built on that hill that God used for the booths, the tents, that Israel lived in for 40 years in the wilderness. And the reason they had to live in those tents instead of going right into the land of promise that God had given them, was the very same thing was going on in their heart that was going on in mine when I built my own little booth on the hill. They were rebellious against God. They resisted all of God's work in their life. Thirteen times in the book of Numbers we have immense resistance on the part of of God's people. And because of that resistance to God, because of that rebellion in their heart, they had to live in that wilderness for 40 years and they dwelt in booths. So when I write about going east and building a little booth, I want you to pick up on those ideas. And there's one more thing. I want you to notice that I built my booth for shade. I didn't rely on God I built my own booth, just like Adam and Eve built their own covering back in the garden. So I put all of these clues in this chapter so that when you join me on the hill, you know what was going on in my heart. And you know more than what was going on in my heart. You know what was the big picture of what was really happening. I was doing the same thing I did in chapter 1. I was removing myself from the presence of God and I was looking for my own way to rely on my own protection. And there I sat, silently resisting to God, engaged in a very disobedient hope. You know I was on that booth? 
or on that hill under that booth. You know what I was doing? I was waiting for God. I was anticipating what would happen to the city. And the reason I was anticipating what God would do to the city is because I had put an ultimatum down with God. You've either got to save me or you have got to save the city. If you choose to save the city, then take away my life. Surely, God would respond to that. In fact, if you remember, Jonah would say, I talked to you about this earlier. This is exactly what Moses did with Israel. God and Moses had a conversation and God was about to destroy Israel and Moses interceded for 40 days and finally he said to God, God, if you're going to destroy Israel, then destroy me. And God said, I'm going to relent. So I took that play out of prophet Moses and as prophet Jonah, I said to God, God, if you are going to destroy Nineveh, then fine, I'm going to rejoice. But if you're not going to relent, then I want you to take away my life. And so I have this disobedient hope, this, this something in my heart that just longs for God to relent of the decision He made. God relented once already. He relented when He saw Nineveh's repentance. And now Jonah wants him to relent again. And by the time we get to the end, Jonah says, and you know what happened to me as I was sitting there in angry silence, nursing this disobedient hope? I lost an amazing opportunity. You know where Jonah could have been? He could have been down there in Nineveh. Here is a whole city full of new believers. They desperately need to be taught the Word of God so they will understand the ways of God, so they can do the will of God. And right in their midst was a prophet who knew the Torah, who understood the way of God and the will of God and was engaged in the work of God. And instead of being down in the middle of all of that tremendous activity that God had brought about, Joan is on a hill angry because God's not changing his mind. Because he really believes that no matter what these people have done and how well they have prayed and how deeply they have repented, they should not receive mercy. And I think if Jonah would look back at us, he would say, now before you see what God did next, I want to ask you a very important question. Do you have a Nineveh like that in your life? Jonah would say to us, look, I didn't have any problem on the boat when God decided to save the pagans. In fact, one of the reasons I did what I did is because I didn't want these pagan sailors to die. So please understand, it's not that I don't want pagans to become believers and followers of Yahweh. I'm fine with that. What I'm not fine with is God taking an empire like Assyria and sort of symbolized in Nineveh, and just in, in one fell swoop, forgiving them, and, and bringing them into right relationship with Him. Listen, in my world, if you're going to become a believer, and you're going to enjoy fellowship with God, there's a door that you have to go through. And the door is Moses. If you're going to come in and be part of God's people and enjoy all of God's blessing, then you've got to become part of God's nation. 
You've got to come in and be circumcised. You've got to embrace the Torah. You've got to embrace all of the obligations of the covenant if you want to enjoy its blessings. And in the Old Testament, you see people do this. And all of a sudden, God decides to do something totally unthinkable in Jonah's worldview. Here is a nation of idolaters. And in one moment, God embraces them as his own. And there's no mention of Moses. And there's no mention of circumcision. And there's no mention of going through the door of Judaism to get to God. And Jonah is sitting here, and in his worldview, that is absolutely unthinkable. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why Jonah is such an important person in the New Testament. You remember Peter is called Peter, son of Jonas? It's literally pointing attention to Peter's connection to Jonah. And the reason the writer of Scripture wants to make that connection is that who is going to be the very first apostle that is going to take the gospel to people who are not Jews? It's Peter. And to get Peter ready for this, God gives him a vision, and there's a sheet full of all the foods that a good Jew would never eat. And God says to Peter, I want you to eat. And Peter steps back in horror, and he goes like, God, no, no. Don't you know what's on the sheet? Well, I know you know because you're omniscient. But I mean, this is unthinkable. How can, I do, how can I eat this stuff? You told us, well, Moses told us, you told Moses to tell, well, yeah, whatever. You told us not to eat. And my whole life has been spent not eating. So now you're going to tell me to eat? And God says to Peter, Peter, don't call unclean what I've just called clean. There's an immense change there. And the Old Testament foundation for that is when God sent a stubborn, self-willed, self-righteous, arrogant prophet more in need of mercy than the people he was going to, to a city of pagan idolaters and granted to them mercy apart from Moses. And Jonah couldn't put it in his head. And sometimes we can't put it in our head. You say, does that happen today? Well, of course it does. We have our own version of what Jonah was dealing with. Well, if you're going to get saved, you're going to have to join our church. And if you're going to join our church, you're going to have to dress like this. You're going to have to think like this. You're going to have to eat like this. You're going to have to do these kinds of things. And I'm not minimizing the importance of things that we've agreed together as a church that will bind us together for the sake of unity. But never for a moment think that that's what makes us acceptable to God. Never for a moment. So here's Jonah, stewing in his anger, desperately hoping that God will relent again and change his mind and bring the judgment that he so desperately wants Nineveh to experience. And so God graciously intervenes. There is a gracious intervention in verses 6 to 8. And what God does is he enrolls this prodigal prophet in his school of learning. And as he goes into the school that God has set up there in the booth, 
he has two courses to take. The first course is a course in gracious, sovereign mercy. The second course is a course in severe, sovereign judgment. Now, the entrance requirement into this school is an unusual one. Look, if you will, at verse 6 and see how the word unfolds this. Verse 6, now the Lord God. You see the two names for God there? The word Lord is the word Yahweh, and it's the name that God used when He talked to His own people Israel. In other words, when God talks to Israel, and when God talks to Jonah, it's typically under the name Yahweh or Jehovah. Elohim is the name that He typically used when He was talking to Gentiles. And here God is saying to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to know that I am the same God over Israel that I am over Nineveh. But here's an unusual thing. Up to this point in the book, when God's been dealing with Jonah, it's been through the name Yahweh. When God's been dealing with the sailors, or He's been dealing with Nineveh, it's been through the name Elohim. But now, for the rest of this chapter, Jonah is going to be under God and the name that God is going to consistently use to refer to himself in these interchanges with, uh, with Jonah is Elohim. You say, what's, what's the big deal about these names, Pastor? Well, here's the point. Jonah is saying, when I went to school, God enrolled me, but he didn't enroll me in my place as a covenant member of God's covenant nation. He put me in the place of Nineveh. And from, from the moment I stepped into the school, God is saying to me, Jonah, you're not sitting here as, as a privileged, appointed covenant servant. You are sitting in the very seat that Nineveh sits in. And so when I came into that school and God put me in Nineveh's chair, He began to teach me two courses. Course number one was a course in sovereign mercy. Notice what God did. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. The word discomfort there is the word for evil. Literally, God is doing all of this to save Jonah from the evil that is in him, just like he saved and delivered Nineveh from the evil that was in them. That's why Jonah is in Nineveh's seat in the classroom. And by the way, Sometimes God has to put us in that chair, doesn't He? Sometimes the very best way to show us our need for mercy, when we are angry that God has put mercy on the life of another, that we would rather He had judged, God puts us in that same chair. And the first thing that God does is He starts a course on sovereign mercy. Here's Jonah in his little booth with his little plant, and he is burning inside, and he's burning outside, and he's about to die. And in one night, this massive plant appears. The way that this is described is that God is responsible for the appearance of that plant. All through the book, God has been appointing things. He appointed a wind in chapter 1 that brought up a great storm. He used the ocean to judge Jonah. He appointed a great fish. Now he appoints a plant, and this plant rises up in one night, 
And we're told that when this plant rose up, Jonah was exceedingly glad. He got up in the morning and he looked at the plant and his heart leapt for joy. This is going to be a better day because of this plant. And the point God is making to Jonah is, Jonah, who gave you that plant? I didn't have to give you that plant. I could have left you stewing under that little pitiful booth of yours. And instead, I looked down and I saw my stubborn, rebellious, self-righteous, spiritually arrogant prophet. And I said, I want to show mercy. And Jonah passed that course with flying colors. He got an A plus on the final exam. He was exceedingly glad. And God says, great, you did well. Now, let's go to course number two. Let's talk about severe judgment. Just like God appointed a plant, keep reading. When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Notice the word attack. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. If you've ever lived in the Middle East, these winds are fearsome things. Got gusts going from 40 to 60 miles an hour, scorching heat, sometimes 115 to 120 degrees. I mean, these are deadly. And here comes this wind, and, and it's from the east. And then the sun beat down on Jonah's head. The word beat down is another word for attack. So here is God, and he sends a worm to attack the plant. He sends a wind to attack Jonah, and he sends the sun to attack Jonah's head. Jonah says, let me tell you why I'm using all of that attack language. Centuries after me is going to come a New Testament writer named James. And James has a very important observation about what I'm experiencing. James says, God resists the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble. And Jonah said, the reason I'm describing all of this in this way is I want you to know that part of God's sovereign mercy involves his relentless pursuit. And sometimes in order to grant me mercy, God has to attack the things that are in the way of that mercy. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought that maybe the east wind that is burning you up and destroying all that is dear to you? Have you ever thought that, that maybe what is going on around you in the circumstances of your life is a severe mercy so that God can grant you His gracious mercy? This is exactly what's going on. And so, how does Jonah fare in this course? Well, he got an A plus on the first course, but here's what we read. He was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when God took away the plant, notice what he says at the end of verse 8. And he asked that he might die, and he said, it is better for me to die than to live. In other words, Jonah says, look, I'm right back where I was. I was exceedingly angry in the first part of chapter 4. Then I'm exceedingly glad at the little bit of mercy that God granted me on the hill. And then when God took it away, I am now back to being exceedingly mad. I'm so discouraged, so dismayed, so frustrated I, that, that I just can't keep living. And he's right back to where he was. 
And that's where we see the fourth thing where God begins now to give an examination to his servant. And he comes back with the same question. He says, Jonah, look, I've let you taste the unexpected joy of my undeserved mercy, and I've also given you a little bit of taste of what it's like to experience the judgment that you were so eager for Nineveh to have. And by the way, isn't that sometimes how we feel? We look at somebody that has done something that has been devastating to us, and in our hearts we're like, God, I just wish you would give them a little taste of this. God, I can't understand why you keep blessing them. Why everything they do seems to just roll on. It just never seems to ever stop. And here I am on the hill, and I'm offended at at the theology of all of this. I'm offended at the moral injustice of all of this, and you just keep rolling on like it's not even there. And you and I both know that it's there. And then the little bit of mercy that I finally got in this miserable corner of my life, you took away. I don't want to live in this kind of a world when you act this way to them and then you act this way to me. And if we're honest, we've all been there. And so God says to Jonah, do you well to be angry for the plant? And this time... Jonah's anger just spills out of his mouth. He says, I do. I am right to be angry when you took away this little bit of mercy that I finally got on the hill. I came all the way over here in obedience to you. I did what you told me to do. I went into that blasted city and I opened up my mouth and I told them about your judgment and you were supposed to judge them and you didn't. And so, yes, I'm right to be angry. I've been right all along. They're like, Jonah. Jonah's like, yeah, I know. I told you it was spilling out of my mouth, and what's coming out of my mouth is coming out of my heart. And by the way, isn't that true for us? And so God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah says, actually, I really am right about this. And you and I are sitting on the hill, and we're moving away as fast as we can. We're putting our little lightning rod up. Because Jonah, can you not see what God's doing? Are you blind? Are you? What's going on? And Jonah's like, he's over here with us going, yeah, I know, look at me over there. That's terrible. But by the way, that's where you are. And isn't that true? That's where I am. That's where you are. And so Jonah has to learn some things that God is trying to teach him. And so one of the things he's got to learn is this. He has to let God be God. He has to give God his place. Jonah, this is not your plant. It never was your plant to start with. You had nothing to do with it. I am the one who decided to make it grow, and I am the one who decided to take it away. And what I'm trying to teach you is that my mercy and my judgment are mine. You already noted that salvation belongs to me in chapter 2, verse 9. That's why you got an A plus on the mercy lesson. But what you have to realize is that my judgment is also mine. And on that lesson, you got an F. You've got to let me be me. You've got to put me in my place. And when you put me in my place, you've got to take your place. You've got to put me in my place, and you've got to get in your place. And the place you're in is this. You are a servant. I am the Creator. I own everything. I own the plant, I own the worm, 
I own the winds. I own the city. I own Israel. I own Assyria. And I own all of the people that live in all of those places. And I can show mercy to whom I want to show mercy. And I can show judgment to who I want to show judgment. And Jonah, it is not your place to decide who and when I show mercy and who and when I decide to show judgment. That's a really frank and hard lesson, isn't it? But sometimes God has to do that to us. Sometimes God just has to sit us down and He has to say to us, look, you're not me. And I know that what you are, are looking at makes zero sense to you. Joan, I understand the theological issues you have. I see the moral issues you have. And I see the personal spiritual things that you're bringing up. But there are things you can't see that I know. This is all part of a much bigger plan that you aren't privy to. And so you've got to let me be God. And you've got to make sure that you are my servant. And sometimes, folks, that is what God has to do. And so let's look at the last thing in the text. There is redemptive instruction, isn't there? I mean, as severe as the rebuke is, as penetrating as the examination, as ugly as what has been in Jonah's heart, and as frank as the conversation that God has had with Jonah is, there is always a redemptive purpose. And so God is about to redeem his prophet, and he does it in two verses. He, he starts off with a very clear observation. Jonah, you feel strongly about what happened to the plant. I mean, he says it right out in verse 10. You pity the plant. You feel strongly about what happened to this plant. The, the word pity there is not like, like Jonah had a love affair with this plant. It's just like he saw this plant. It was a great source of joy. It disappeared, and it was a great source of disappointment and displeasure. You pity this plant. You are deeply bothered by what happened. And you didn't make this plant. You had nothing to do with it. It came up in a night. It was on the planet for less than 24 hours. You pity the plant. I get it. But let me compare the plant to something God says. Look at the next thing He says. I want you to compare that plant that you had nothing to do with that was on the planet for less than 24 hours. It was a single plant. And I want you to compare it to that city down there. That city is a great city. It's been around since the days of Noah in Genesis 10. That city is filled with image bears that were created in my image. And on top of the image bears, 120,000 of them, there are many, many cattle, many, many, many livestock, much livestock there. And I care about all those things. Because I created them, and I own them, and it grieves me, and it gives me great displeasure when I have to judge them. You have great displeasure at the loss of the plant. Can you imagine my displeasure at the loss of a city? Jonah, if you're right to be angry with the plant, then I'm right to be displeased at the loss of a city, which is why I gave them mercy. And that's the unassailable conclusion. God says, I am not 
pleased when I have to bring wrath. He's going to write it this way in Ezekiel. He says, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jonah, you can't wait for these people to be destroyed. You can't wait for wrath to fall. You didn't want to talk one bit about my mercy. You came in and your entire message was about my wrath. And then you took off for the hills and I did all the rest of it. My voice, my spirit, my word, my repentance, my quickening, my awakening. And the reason I did that, Jonah, is because I take no pleasure when I judge Nineveh. And by the way, I'm going to judge it about 100 years from now in the book of Nahum. I take no pleasure in what you take pleasure in. You take pleasure in my wrath when it falls on your enemy. You take pleasure in my mercy when it falls on you. And just like you don't deserve mercy, they don't deserve it either. And just like you got it, they got it. And they got it because mercy is mine. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? You know, we've made our way through this nice little story that Jonah's told us. I say nice because it's beautiful, it's penetrating, it's piercing. What have we learned about God? Well, we've learned that He waits patiently for His people to turn from their wickedness. We've learned that He gives graciously even when Jonah pulls rank and resists him. We've learned that God forgives mercifully. And we've learned that God accepts compassionately. We've learned this about God. If I could sum up the book of Jonah this way, I would say Jonah is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. For God so loved the what? He so loved the world that He gave His Son. Jonah, God so loved Israel. Jonah, God so loved the pagan sailors. God so loved wicked Nineveh. God loved you, prodigal Jonah, and God loves you, and God loves me. For God so loved the world. And the reason mercy stands is the rest of John 3.16. He so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten son. All of the misery, all of the violence, all of the people whose lives were shattered, all that Nineveh had done, God took upon Himself. He bore all of that wickedness. He bore all of that evil. He bore all of that violence. And He took it upon Himself. And one day, He sent His Son to another hill. And on that hill, a prophet greater than Jonah paid with his own life for all of the sins of Nineveh and of Israel and of Jerusalem and of the world, and of you, and of me. And that's why mercy stands. It stands on the work of God. And that's why salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, I'd like to ask you to bow your head very quietly. Maybe you find yourself stunned at what Jonah has been saying. I want the last thing we think about in our mind, I want us to see Jonah packing up his stuff, 
putting his stick with a little bag with his meager possessions on his shoulder and beginning the long trek back to Jerusalem. And as he walks down the pathway, we say, Jonah, did you learn the lesson? And Jonah kind of turns back and smiles at us and he says, who do you think wrote the book? And then just before he walks the rest of the journey, he says back to us, now let me ask you a question. Did you learn the lesson? And that's really the question. Have you experienced God's mercy? Or have you convinced yourself that your sin is so great, it's so deep, it has destroyed so much, it has taken away so much from you, it has been repeated so often, you are tired of begging God for forgiveness and making promise after promise after promise, and you're wondering, is there any mercy left? And Jonah would say, come over to my hill. There's a boatload of it. Maybe there's an evil in your own heart that God has been exposing. There's somebody or something that has occurred in your life and you are angry at God over what He has allowed, what He has tolerated, what He seems to have overlooked. And while you still follow Him, you're, you're distant from Him. You, you are sitting on your own hill and it's been a long time since you and God have talked. And every time God begins to prompt, you're like, I'm not ready, I'm not talking to you today, God, because of what happened. And until you fix that, you and I are going to have a silent relationship. And God says, no, we're not. We're not going to have a silent relationship. I love you too much for that. My grace has been pursuing you relentlessly, and today is the day you're going to find mercy. Are you there today? Has God been pursuing you? Has God been saying to you, let's talk, and you've been holding your hand up, or you've been turning your voice away from God? And finally, in a moment of utter frustration, you pour out all of this anger at His feet, and God says, it's okay. I've got mercy for that. I've got grace for that. And maybe today, God is granting you that repentance that He granted the Ninevites. Would you embrace that? Would you stop before you leave this place and say to God, God, thank you for pursuing me. Thank you for not leaving me burning in my anger. Thank you for not leaving me on that hill. Thank you for sending Jonah into my life. Because just like God sent Jonah to Nineveh, maybe God is sending Jonah to us in this series to speak truth to us so that we would come to find the mercy that Nineveh found and that Jonah found. Lord, we thank You for the immensity of Your mercy and the sovereign nature of it. We don't deserve it. We don't merit it. We can't manipulate it. All we can do is receive it and enjoy it. And so, Lord, if we're here this morning, some of us who need that, Lord, would You not let us leave? Would You not let us stay on our hill? Would You not... Let us remain in our stubborn silence. Would you grant to us repentance? Would you open our eyes and quicken our hearts and expose the evil in us that you graciously want to remove? And would you replace it with the sweetness of your mercy? And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.